Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning and to have the opportunity to share God's word with you, so thank you. I'm going to start off reading the passage for today, um, which comes from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. Then I'll pray and we'll jump right in. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, this is God's word. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. In that day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Pray with me. Lord, um, this morning, my simple prayer is that your word would go forth with boldness, clarity, and power, and that your people would be blessed, encouraged, and empowered. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you saved? Are you saved? Growing up in my particular tradition, this was a question that was often asked of people, particularly young people, and the question would come at very random times, but you knew it was coming. And the expectation was that, just as you did, you'd know how to answer it very confidently. And I can remember the very first time that the question came my way. I was probably eight or nine. And one of the church's longtime deacons grabbed me by the hand. He locked eyes with me, and he pointedly asked, son, are you saved? And I froze. I didn't know how to answer the question. I mean, I knew what they wanted me to say. They expected me to state confidently, just as you did, yes, I am saved. And in some sense, I believed that I was. I had placed my faith in Jesus. I had trusted in his finished work on the cross for salvation. I believed those things, and I still do. But for some reason, my nine-year-old self just didn't feel saved. Well, I never could make sense of what I felt that day. And as I grew older, I continued to struggle with that tension. Eventually, by God's grace, however, I would come to an understanding and also be able to articulate what the problem was. And it was this. You see, the theological tradition that I grew up in projected way, way out and way, way up. Placed a very heavy emphasis on heaven as one's ultimate experience of salvation. But for me, that idea just felt too much like a spiritual shortcut. So I hardened. And I can remember developing this sort of rebellious edge in thought that said, if Jesus, faith, and salvation did not impact the everyday stuff of the here and now, then Jesus wasn't worth following. But I was deeply devoted to the king, even at an early age. So I had this trouble reconciling this apparent gap in my faith experience, and it began somewhat of a crisis of faith for me. Well, that, that tension and that dissonance, it caused me to pull away. Right, to alleviate it, I pulled away from my local church context right around college. And in that time, it began a more prayerful, intentional reading of scriptures. I don't think I was looking for anything in particular. It wasn't like this deep research. But I just loved reading about Jesus. I loved reading about Jesus, what Jesus was doing in the lives of people, how he was giving them new experiences, creating new life for them. And in this kind of reading, I started to give more attention attention to Jesus' words and actions. And I started to look into some of the prophets that he was actually quoting. And as I did, the dots started to connect. I began to see God's salvation in a different light. 
You see, scripture had some pretty amazing things to say about salvation beyond just the ideas of heaven, eternity, and atonement. Scripture spoke of salvation in some very literally powerful ways. Scripture saw salvation as being very active and forceful and having sweeping, transformative effects. I also noticed that this salvation was often connected to the concept of righteousness. Righteousness. In fact, in many instances, it was this righteousness itself that was the power of God's salvation. This turned my world upside down. As I previously understood it, righteousness was simply a moral quality that signified a new standing in Jesus. When one believed in Jesus, he was right, he was just, he was holy. But in this new reading of righteousness, it wasn't seen simply as a moral standing. It was seen also as a moral force. For me, that made all the difference. And I became invigorated. I became empowered. I became excited about the possibilities of living in a reality where God's salvation could have this kind of transforming power on me and through me. So as I continued my study and exploration of righteousness from this vantage point, really three truths began to emerge that would serve as somewhat theological and ethical anchor points moving forward, and they were these. The idea of a righteous God, a righteous gospel, and a righteous people. So let me start out with a righteous God. And to give you some context about our passage today, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a priest and prophet in Israel, and God used him to announce judgment on Israel for their sin and injustice. This judgment was very imminent. In fact, Jeremiah would live to see this judgment. It came in the way of the nation of Babylon coming to destroy Jerusalem and taking the people of Israel back into captivity. Much of the, dark, much of the book is dark with those kinds of pronouncements. But sprinkled within, there are some glimpses of light where God announces not just judgment, but hope. And our passage for today is one of those announcements of hope for Israel in the midst of all of this despair. And that announcement is this, that God would not always, always have that outlook for Israel. They would not always be under his judgment. But one day, he would finally and permanently and completely restore their fortunes as his people. Listen to this. Again, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. And that day Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Here we begin to see a picture of what God's current salvation looks like. And listen how God talks about his saving action for his people. He uses words like wisdom and just and right and saved and safety. The kind of God that comes into view is one who is active and invested was immensely devoted to his covenant to restore his people. It's a God who identifies his salvation with things that he is for just as much as things that he is against. Well, the biblical writers also tell us that this saving power wasn't solely limited for Israel, but that it had always been God's intention. It had always been in his heart to extend this salvation out to the nations, to the world. So that all people in all times could potentially be recipients of this great salvation. That means you and me today. God is for us right now in this fierce kind of way. Well, as I continue to develop this picture of this right now salvation God, I begin to see more and more how much his salvation is imminent and earthly. You see, I had previously thought of God as mostly transcendent and eternal, even cold. 
But now the kind of God that was emerging was a God that was near to me, a God that makes promises for me and keeps them, a God that leads me in wisdom, a God that protects and provides. This moved me from seeing God as a distant overseer to more as a dynamic shepherd. As a result, I'm now able to lean into and on this salvation. And get this, it's a current experience. So it's not something that I'm constantly working for. Rather, it's something that is fiercely working for me. And I get to simply rest in it and experience it in all of its fullness. I grew up uh, without a father. And uh, my father, he was incarcerated uh, when I was about one. And he's still in prison to this day. And as a kid, while I never really thought of how growing up without a dad might affect me in a long-term kind of way, I certainly could feel the pain of his absence in the moment. I never thought, hey, Butch, growing up without a dad is going to impact you in some heavy ways well into adulthood. But I had cried sometimes realizing that I'd never have a dad in the stands watching me score a touchdown. I never really thought about the transfer of knowledge that happens between a father and his son, but in a weird kind of way, once talking to a college buddy, I broke out in tears as he talked to me about how much his dad taught him about investing. The pain of my father's absence has always been felt, even to this day. And so it makes seeing God in this way a true experience of salvation for me. This covenant-making, promise-keeping, wisdom-giving, justice-seeking, presently-abiding God has been all that my father never could be. And the more intentional I am about being a son to this God, depending on him, obeying him, running to him, the more powerfully I feel him in these ways. A righteous God is a right-now God. The second thing that began to emerge in my new reading of righteousness was a righteous gospel. I grew up understanding the gospel to, to be something like this. Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead, and in doing so, he freed us from sin and death. Believe in him and you'll have eternal life. All things that I totally, totally believe to be true, they are biblical, but they are only part of the gospel. But this new understanding of righteousness, it was giving me a fuller description, a fuller definition of the gospel. Again, in verse 5 of our passage, Jeremiah says, For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. Here we see God deciding to execute his saving work through a king. In fact, the descendant of King David. And immediately, I hear Jesus. And I hear him saying a few things. One, Jesus' first recorded words in all of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 3, as Jesus was beginning his ministry, he came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist refused. And Jesus pushed back saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And with Jeremiah 23 ears, we might hear, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all of God's righteous salvation. Jesus would then officially begin his public ministry with these words in Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, he begins his ministry saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The connection that I'm wanting to make is that the gospel, God's salvation, is intimately tied to the coming of God's kingdom. Before any mention of Jesus' death, 
burial, and resurrection, there was the good news that God's new way of life in and through Jesus was breaking into our own reality. Jesus was essentially shouting, the king is here. That is his message. But this is more than just a timeless message. It's a dynamic reordering of both our intellectual and ethical way of life. So for me, it's more than just the fact that Jesus died for me. It's also the fact that he is bringing my every heart's desire under and in conformity to his rule. Since believing the gospel in this way, kind of in an ironic way, I've experienced more pain than I've ever had. You see, when I believe Jesus is king, I find a humble and feeble ability to obey, and it hurts. You need only to live just a little while as a believer to know that the way of Jesus is difficult. It's hard to obey. And for me, there are two ways in particular that it continues to hurt. One, I find that I cannot completely obey, constantly messing up, constantly getting it wrong. And so I find that I am broken when I break allegiance. But two, I also find that it often hurts when I am able to obey. Surprise, surprise. My nature is so bent toward unrighteousness that it literally hurts when I'm able to pull away and toward Jesus. But get this, salvation and obedience also go hand in hand. Listen to Paul in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Jesus gives us obedience as a gift of grace, sometimes a, a painful gift. But I believe even in its pain, it should be received as a gift and as a small experience of salvation in the here and now. But it isn't all, it, it's not all pain, right? To be sure, the gospel does mean good news. And what makes the news good is that the king is bringing about a reality that reflects his own nature. He is bringing into our current reality what many of us tend to think of when we think of heaven. Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 4 as he quotes the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, cap to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus then goes on to say this, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. You hear that? A couple things I hear. Not only do we get to experience this goodness right now, but we get to experience, experience it as the gospel. That's subtle, but it's huge. Things like justice and mercy and peace and unity, these things aren't just charity. They aren't just good works that flow out of a right understanding of the gospel. In fact, they're how Jesus identified his whole mission. They are the gospel, which means that we don't have to create these false dichotomies, social good and gospel. We can just experience the king's goodness as the gospel. This summer, it'd be about two years that my family and I have been coming to Mosaic. And when we first started to explore the possibility of, of, of visiting, like most people do, we, we went to the church's webpage. And can you guess what I was looking for? I was looking for some theological distinctives. 
I wanted to know how close this church aligned itself with the gospel. You know, most churches just do, do just that on their web pages, right? They'll have some statements that sort of say where they stand on certain issues. But I didn't see it on Mosaic's web page. And that was discouraging because I carried this kind of inner law that said, if you don't know, don't go. <laughs> if I couldn't see any theological clarity and precision, I just didn't bother. But as they say in the uh, old black church, we pressed our way anyhow, and we came. And while we couldn't find on the website any theological distinctives per se, what we did find when we arrived was an overwhelming experience of welcome a deep experience of embrace, and a refreshing experience of authenticity. It reminded me of the stories of Jesus when he was out healing on the Sabbath and breaking the Sabbath law, and the religious leaders were just livid and upset and demanding him to stop. But you think about the others who were on the other side of this, this healing. They had no concern for this, this so-called law. They knew that that law was doing what it had always intended to do and be. It was Jesus was giving them new life, a new experience, right? They were like, forget this law. I can walk again, right? I can see again. I am seen again. People are talking to me and touching me. In the same way, I had trouble keeping hold of my law because my family and I were experiencing the goodness of the gospel here. Isn't that what really matters? that you experience a bit of what God says his kingdom will be like. You see, a righteous gospel is a right now gospel. And then my final and third point, again, as I begin this new understanding of righteousness, what came into view was that of a righteous people. A righteous people. In the first part of verse 6 in Jeremiah 23, speaking of this coming king of righteousness, Jeremiah says, and this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. In this righteous new order, God gave his people a new name by which to call him, our righteousness. In doing so, he was making a statement about who he was, but he was also making a statement about who they had now become. They become righteous people. And I think the Apostle Paul gets at this kind of identity transfer really well in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says this, For our sake... God made him, that's Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, for me, in light of God's righteous salvation, this very familiar passage began to take on a dramatically new, new meaning. You see, my previous understanding of this passage, again, was that Paul was talking about the idea of what some theologians call imputed righteousness, right? When you believe in Jesus he zaps you with his own moral quality and standing, and now you are seen as, as right in God's eyes. Again, I believe that to be true. That's a process that absolutely happens, but that's not what Paul is getting at in this particular passage. If we read this verse in the context of what Paul says both a bit before and after, we see Paul qualifying his new righteousness with his new identity as a minister of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3.6, a minister of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18, and an ambassador of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. In other words, Paul has a new calling. In and through Jesus, he has a new vocation of righteous salvation, this feisty righteousness that we see in Jeremiah 23. Wisdom, justice, peace, 
salvation, security. Just as Jesus saw himself as an extension of God and he began to embody these ideas, in like manner, Paul saw himself as an extension of Jesus and is now carrying out this vocation of right now salvation. And guess what? Now we, the church, as a right now salvation people, take on a unique identity and responsibility to reflect the character of Jesus in the world. He is our righteousness. We are his righteousness. It's not enough to be saved and simply wait for heaven. It won't do to be saved and simply bottle up and privatize our faith. Our, our righteousness demands more. And so like Paul, we, in light of the new covenant of Christ, have become ambassadors or promoters of Christ with a ministry of reconciliation for Christ. And just a brief bit about this reconciliation that Paul talks about. It's more, it's more than just getting people to make nice. It's a reconciliation that has cosmic significance. As Paul would say in Colossians 1, it is the bringing together the whole created order into harmony under Jesus. This reconciliation has in view the idea of making all things work like they were supposed to in the environment, among races, in our marriages, certainly within the church. But I'll be honest, it's pretty daunting to think of fulfilling this kind of righteous role, right? I mean, minister, ambassador, reconciliation, that's some heavy stuff. It's the kind of work reserved for people like Pastor Brad. <laughs> not really, not necessarily. By virtue of our faith in Jesus, we are all given the role of being representatives, his representatives. This means that 95% of us or more will live out our calling as electricians, handymen, nurses, teachers, social workers, businessmen and women, students, stay-at-home moms and dads. And so personally, I find that I have to be and extend righteousness in everyday normal ways. In fact, finding humble yet powerful ways of being God's righteousness is in and of itself an experience of salvation. Take peace in the Middle East off the table. I have a calling to make peace in my home. Maybe I'm not called to pastor a church, but I've been stretched and sanctified in shepherding the small flock that I call my family. I found that I have the ability to be beauty and light and justice in some very non-spectacular but still very God-honoring ways. A couple winters ago, we had a really, really big snowstorm, you may remember. Um, it was at least, at least a foot of snow on the ground. And the snow just continued on throughout the day and eventually stopped later in the night. And I can remember when it stopped, I immediately got up to go out to shovel the walkways and to get my car out so I didn't have to deal with it in the morning. As you know, the snow hardens overnight. Well, the next morning, I could hear some shoveling going, out, going on out front. And it was chipping away at this hard snow and ice. And I thought, poor soul, I wonder how long it's going to take this guy to get his car out. And some time went by, and he was still hard, hard at work. And the thought came to me, maybe you should offer to help. So I looked out my window to get an idea how far he'd gotten, and the first thing I noticed was that he was a she. It was one of our young married neighbors who lived a little further down the block, and she had happened to park up close to our, to our place earlier. And so now I'm feeling really guilty. So I throw on some clothes, I grab my shovel, and I ran out to help. And as I approached our car, I didn't say a word, I just started shoveling fast and furious. We went together at it for about for at least a half hour, and we were finally able to get her car out. And when we were done, she thanked me, 
And as she started to walk back toward her house, I jokingly asked, hey, where's hubby? And she looked at me and started crying. And she said, on the couch. My heart sank. And I softly and graciously said, you're welcome, and went back in the house. But here was an experience of salvation for all parties involved. She received salvation in the form of some shoveling help. I experienced salvation that I could extend a simple yet appreciated act of righteousness. But my wife also received salvation that day. Because as I looked at this young lady in the face, I could see myself as the target of her grief. How many of us hubbies, or wifeys for that matter, are found on the couch when the other need us most? And that's not the shame. But for me, it was an opportunity for introspection and assessment and sanctification. It was an opportunity to become a little more like Jesus, both in the world, but also in my home. A righteous people need to be constantly looking in the face of Jesus if they expect to reflect him well. A righteous people are right now people in Jesus. A righteous people, a righteous God, a righteous gospel, they all help fill in that salvation gap that I felt early on. And these aren't new revelations that God mystically gave me. They are treasures that for some reason were buried deep in God's word, just waiting to be found and experienced. And these pillars are rooted in the truth that God has begun and is continuing his work of making all things new in and through Jesus. And when we take hold of Jesus, we take hold of this precious promise. And though we don't always see it fully, it is now here to be experienced, to be obeyed, to be reflected. I think we should demand more of God in this regard. We should demand more of our theologies and our churches in this regard, our governments and institutions. We should demand more of ourselves. God's salvation is here in all of its fullness, and it is here for the taking. 2 Corinthians 6 says, In the right time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Pray with me. Lord, I pray uh, that your people have been encouraged um, and that they are confident in the fact that Jesus is Lord and he saves. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.